Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Of course, the standard uh, textbooks uh, proclaim that we on, um, you know, biology and evolution proclaim that we evolved from some ape-like animal. And um, it's interesting that uh, one of the arguments for this in in the past has been that we, our DNA was very similar to uh, that of chimpanzees. So it was claimed, for example, that there was um, an article, uh, there was uh, only about 1% difference between the genomes of chimpanzees and humans. However, a a few years ago, back in 2007, there was an article published in the journal Science, which is one of the world's top science journals, along with Nature, and it was titled Relative Differences, The Myth of 1%. And essentially this article details how in 1975, also published in Science, um, a couple of science, uh, scientists, Alan Wilson and Mary Claire King, wrote an article claiming that there was a 1% difference between the genomes of chimpanzees and humans. Actually, to be precise, um, they showed approximately 1% difference between the coding regions of selected genes. But nonetheless, a myth was born. And that uh, 1% myth served to reinforce um, in the minds of people this evolutionary process. Um, As I said, that was published back in 19. Um, 75. But of course, since then, um, there's uh, a lot more research has been done. Um, and by the way, the, the reference for the article in uh, back in 1975 was Science Volume 188, pages 107 to 116. And, um, but it's interesting that um, the author of the 2007 science article, Jay Cohen, points out that according to another study um, that was published um, just a year or so earlier in 2006, the um, human genome has over 1,400 genes, or 6.4% of all genes, that do not have orthologs in the chimpanzee um, a genome. And so that means uh, for these coding genes, there's zero correlation. And so if even if you're talking about just coding genes, um, you've got to multiply um, these factors together, which gives us a similarity in the coding genes of less than 90%. So less than 90% of the coding genes between humans and um uh, chimpanzees are uh, similar. Um, and in fact, now that uh, virtually the entire genetic code for both chimpanzees and humans is available um, using uh, computer programs um, of looking at the whole genomes, um, they come up with an identity of only about 84% is similar. So we can see that the original claim that we're 99% the same is is very inaccurate. And um, 
So why does the myth persist? And this is one of the problems that we have um, in that rather than looking at the data that we can actually measure and, and updating things according to what we now know, I think it becomes very clear that there's an agenda behind our education system to keep God and particularly the Bible and the Bible account out of our education system. People, there are groups of people that want to uh, relegate the Bible to a, a mythical book, to not uh, a book that is in actual fact a true account of our history. And yet when we consider the archaeological evidence, when we consider the um, the, the evidence from history uh, that has been recorded, all the, all the areas that we can check seem to line up really, really well. Now, of course, there's, you know, we, we get some fuzzy bits when we go into Egyptian history, but we need to remember there's great um, you know, uh, arguments over Egyptian history timelines because of the, the way they dated things back then. It's very hard to correlate uh, with a, an accurate chronological uh, system. Uh, but again, we find that there's a number of markers and um, a, a colleague of mine, David Down, and myself have uh, written about this in a book, uh, Unwrapping the uh, Pharaohs, how um, uh, Egyptian history confirms the biblical timeline. And we point out there's a number of markers in um, Egyptian history that we can, archaeological history, that line up very well with the uh, biblical accounts and also the fact that Egypt itself is named after Noah's grandson, um, Egyptus, or Mizraim in the Hebrew. So um, Egyptus was just the Greek translation. So, And so many of the towns in that area and, uh, are named after the descendants of, of Noah. Um, we, we have this amazing historical correlation there. But... Um, Again, evolutionists are trying to pull back these longer ages. But now as we look at the genetics, we're finding more and more evidence that fits a young earth, and, and that is the biblical account, an earth, life on earth being you know 6,000 years old or thereabouts, um, and, um, and also you know, humans being created at that at time. So in other words, humans being that old. For example... According to the the textbooks, as we have the talk about, you know, humans evolving from some ape-like creature, they assume that the population of hominids never, or human-like people, you know, beings never drop below about ten thousand, and that there was never a first man or first woman from whom anyone descended. Uh, but now, and the, and also, they want to claim that the story of Adam and Eve is a myth. Well. It's interesting that uh, as we look now at our genes, and particularly as we look at the accumulation of mutations in our genes, which we're doing a lot more research on now because this uh, can help us with a lot of, uh, of the genetic diseases and understanding these genetic diseases, which seem to be increasing. Um, the current understanding is that our mitochondria system um, is inherited for practical purposes solely from our mothers and that we go back to one particular woman. In other words, all the other female lines uh, essentially would have to be argued could uh, must have died out. 
So originally, and this is why you may read about this, this original female progenitor is dubbed mitochondrial Eve. Um, and so, again, when we look at the, this, um, you know, science assumes that this particular woman lived in Africa about 200,000 years ago. And so we now have uh, estimates of uh, rates of uh, mutation. Um, and um, if we assume rates of uh, 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 2 to 4% per million years, the common ancestor of all surviving mitochondrial DNA types should have existed about 140 to 290,000 years ago. That's what they want to, to claim happen. Uh, but when we actually go and measure the actual um, rates of mutation and do back calculations, we actually get a very different picture. And so, um, for example... Uh, if we note that the mutational rate for mitochondria was originally calibrated by the standard geological time scale, when calibrated to actual history, in other words, when we measure the rate of mutation um, against actual history, in other words, we uh, analyse historical samples, it turns out that the rate of mutation is much higher than expected. And this is a very interesting article that was published in Nature Genetics back in 1997 uh, by T.J. Parsons and co-author. Uh, so it's in Nature Genetics, um, volume 15, pages 363 to C68. And this paper points out that there's a high observed substitution rate in human mitochondrial DNA control region. Now, this is very, very interesting because this gave rise to the, the calculations. So we actually, this is using to the data, looking at the data that we can actually measure. Um, and he said, taken together, our data indicate a remarkably high substitution rate, one in 33 generations. So assuming a generation time of 20 years, this extrapolates to a substitution rate of about 2.5 sites per million years. But when we work down, this observed substitution rate here is very high compared to the rates inferred from evolutionary studies. And so the rate that they're observing is roughly about a 20-fold higher rate. And using our empirical rate to calculate mito the mito mitochondrial DNA molecular clock would result in an age of mitochondrial DNA for our most recent common ancestor of dating back to just six and a half thousand years. And of course they comment clearly incompatible with the known age of modern humans. And I thought that is so interesting that when we actually look at the and measure the actual rate of mutations and calculate back, we have this mitochondrial Eve date only six and a half thousand years ago. And it's interesting in a paper that was published in Science back in 1998, so this is in the journal Science, um, it's volume 279, pages 28 to 29, by Anne Gibbons. 
And this is what she wrote. Regardless of the cause, evolutionists are most concerned about the effect of a faster mutation rate. For example, researchers have calculated that mitochondrial Eve, the woman whose mitochondrial DNA was ancestral to that in all living people who's supposed to have lived um, 100,200 years ago in Africa, but using the new clock, she would be a mere 6,000 years old. Again, she covers herself by saying, no one thinks that's the case. But at what point should the model switch from one mitochondrial time zone to another? So this is really, really interesting. Really, really interesting. What it's saying is that when we use the most accurate data we have and do the calculations... The first woman was 6,000 years ago. And, of course, that's exactly what the Bible is telling us. And I find this is really interesting. And as I said, these are research papers published in the top science journals in the world. Science and nature, in my view, are the two top science journals in the world. You know, there's so many false... um, claims have been made in the past in an attempt to prop up the theory of evolution. And of course, one of those was this whole concept of, of um, pseudogenes or false genes. And this was a, a term that um, scientists coined for uh, things that they were finding that looked like protein coding genes, but were not used to make proteins. And so in the evolutionary mind, a pseudogene is, is some sort of broken gene which once coded for a protein. Um, and so they assumed that mutations in the past crippled the gene at some time. And so these pseudogenes were considered to be a form of what they then became called junk DNA. And many of us have, have heard of this term, junk um, uh, DNA, and of course they found this junk DNA in humans and chimpanzees and gorillas, um, and some of them, quite interestingly, shared the same. Um, these three groups shared the same of these junk DNA, and um, for a long time, uh, evolutionists argued that they must have come from a common ancestor, and. Um, Also, it was claimed that, yeah, it can't have been, this is evidence against creation because would the, you know, the Christian God have intentionally created uh, purposeless genes in in humans? Uh, However, these um, pseudogenes have actually been discovered, of course, to be extremely functional. And that's, again, where this shared mistake argument you know, all all collapses as well. And we find, wow, instead we have more powerful evidence for creation. In many ways, the, the pseudogene argument is like the old vesicle um, organ argument um, that was... And so, again, it was once claimed that the human body was filled with many functionless organs um, which were, were left over you know, appendix, uh, tonsils, these sort of things. But, of course, since that time we've found, well, hang on, these are quite um, important uh, organs um, and they play an important role. And, again, 
the the old junk DNA argument was essentially an argument from silence um, or a classical logical fallacy because we don't know what something does doesn't mean that it does nothing. And I think one of the surprising things was, of course, that the codes and these uh, particularly junk DNA portions of um, our uh, DNA uh, play extremely complex roles that took us a long time to actually discover and work out what they did. And yet, again, we're still uh, sticking to the claim that this the amazing DNA system arose by you know, chance random mutations. We know it's absolutely impossible. The codes are so complex, but yet in our schools we're not changing what we're teaching to, to the young people. Um, now nearly all the genome has been demonstrated to be functional, um, and that came out of the ENCODE project. So if you Google capital E, capital N, capital C, capital O, capital D, capital E project, and... Um, it found that at least 90% of human DNA is actually transcribed into RNA. And, um, and um, that RNA, for example, um, land on matching DNA strands and prevent uh, a gene from being read. Or this is one, and this is one way a cell controls gene expression. Right? That is how much of a particular protein is produced. Um, and also, they also found out that the genome is even polyfunctional. Um, in, in other words, a given DNA letter, and we know that these letters are, are chemicals that we abbreviate A, C, T and G, um, can be part of multiple sets of instructions, a particular letter in a particular pace, uh, because there's codes within the code, so to speak. And it's really interesting when you think about the the argument that is often used that if you know we taught creation in schools that God created this amazing uh, DNA system that God created the amazing micro machines that are involved in uh, untwisting DNA and and so forth and and reading the DNA code and assembling amino acids into proteins and all this sort of thing. Um, if we had to believe that God created these things, I think there's an argument that in many cases our science would have progressed much beyond where it is. Uh, I think there can be a, a case given that the early scientists like Newton uh, looked for uh, laws in nature because they believed in God to create. They believed that God would be ordered, that there would be laws, physical laws. And, of course, Newton discovered those laws that govern nature, and so it fitted a creator mind. And um, this blind chance mutation random theory, trying to account for the amazing complexity of living systems, we, you know, we have overwhelming evidence now that that is impossible, and yet we're still teaching Darwinian type evolution in our schools. It's interesting that some significant discoveries have been made concerning the pseudogenes in humans and and um, and, and, and ape-like 
um, animals. Uh, and it's interesting that the same pseudogenes in different species are far more similar than uh, that would be expected if they were useless. For example, the beta-globulin uh, pseudogenes in humans and chimpanzees are nearly identical. Um, and so a mutation in a, in a useless gene would not have been subject to natural selection uh, because they would not have uh, uh, affect survival and therefore uh, reproduction. Um, and thus a uh, functionless uh, gene. Um, so, um, you know, why are there so few mutations actually seen in these pseudogenes if they um, were useless? So in other words, the more and more we delve into this, the more and more evidence we see that um, everything is being designed, carefully designed, to play a role. It's interesting that due to the lack of study, because people thought these pseudogenes were you know, junk, the function of many of these pseudogenes remains um, unknown. Um, and this is largely because evolutionary assumptions about pseudogenes are the major reason why it's taken so long for scientists to discover what pseudogenes actually do. There was quite an interesting paper published in uh, 2021 in Science Direct. Um, it's uh, Science Direct, volume 56, number 4, pages 478 to 493, um, uh, by Y. Ma, um, uh, and the surname M.A. and others. And it was titled, Genome-Wide Analysis of Pseudogenes Reveals HBBP1's Human-Specific Essentiality in the Erythropoiesis and Implication for Beta Thalassemia. Well, that's its title. But essentially what they say is, possibly due to the traditional view that pseudogenes are functionless evolutionary relics, only dozens of human pseudogenes have been functionally characterised. Further on, they write, in conclusion, pseudogenes represent a new layer in the flow of genetic information. The highly integrative framework implemented in this study provides a prototype for determining the functions of pseudogenes under normal and pathological conditions. Exploration of species-specific regulatory functions of pseudogenes or even studies of population-specific pseudogenes are expected to blossom in the future. So here we can see that if scientists had have believed these geneticists had have initially believed in creation, they would have been looking for these codes. They would have been exploring and assumed that, yeah, God doesn't make junk. It would have all had a meaning and we would be so much further advanced in possibly, you know, combat, combating genetic and other diseases than we are because we initially just assumed that they were part of evolutionary mutations. And... Um, it's really not surprising that many of God's creations have similar structures in their bodies or similarities in their genetic blueprints. I mean, an engineer often uses the same parts in different designed objects, you know, whether it's cars, motorcycles, bikes and airplanes. And, you know, if you think about it, if every organism were completely different, it'd look like life was designed by many different designers. Instead, we have, you know, powerful evidence from the design 
that there was this one amazing designer, the creator God. So as with the entire, you know, junk DNA argument, um, we have this just one more case of evolution hindering scientific process. And um, many evolutionists, of course, have tried to use the shared user genes as a magic bullet argument against intelligent design. However, their case depended crucially on the belief that the genes did nothing. And so again, we find that that, uh, that was an old argument that was used against intelligent design. And I know, you know, years ago there was a, an effort to promote the teaching of the evidence for intelligent design um, in schools, you know, parallel with the current biology syllabus. And it was just, you know, politically rejected by, you know, the uh, biological teachers associations and, and so forth against this. But now here we have overwhelming evidence again, more in the favour of intelligent design and again, powerful evidence against evolution. As um, you've been listening to um, this program and this program's Faith and Science, uh, remember if you want to re-listen to um, these uh, programs, just Google uh, 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the radio listen button and look for the program Faith and Science. And please, um, I would like to encourage listeners to share links to these uh, programs on your own social media pages to tell people about them. There's a, another link in the uh, Radio Listen section called Science Conversations where I go through and discuss the, um, the individual chapters in my book Evolution Impossible, 12 Reasons Why Evolution Cannot Explain the Origin of Life on Earth. And as well as that, of course, if you go to the TV section and look, um, click on the TV catch-up, um, there is a, another program there, Evolution Impossible, where I answer questions, again, on the topics discussed in the chapters of my book, um, Evolution Impossible. And remember, of course, too, um, my book, uh, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Um, all the individual chapters of those PhD scientists um, are available on the creation.com website. Um, if you just enter in the uh, search engine there, in six days preface, um, and then when that page comes up, down the side there's a list of names, and if you just click on a name, the chapter of that scientist, and these scientists give powerful arguments uh, from their own perspective um, of why they believe in a literal six-day creation as described in the Bible. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.